0: The scripture today is um, excerpts from Exodus 32. So get ready. (laughs) When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he was spoken of bringing on his people. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are all set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin, They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, an angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: That's great. Thanks, Vicki. I was hoping for wrath and not wrath, but that's okay. Uh, it's a long passage, and uh, thanks for sticking with her and us as we read through this, uh, but it's hard to cut any of it out. Um, good to see you on spring break, waiting to go to the beach until after the worship service. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, but my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City, and we are in the middle of this series on the Book of Exodus, uh, which brings us to a famous chapter in the Book of Exodus. Uh, indeed, in in the whole Bible, really, uh, one that a lot of people are aware of, or at least have heard of. They know the general framework of the story, but where or what has gone on to this point? Uh, if you've not been with us, uh, and Exodus is uh, new to you, uh, or uh, maybe you've missed the last couple of Sundays. Uh, Israel has been rescued. Israel has been redeemed, restored as God's people. And now they're congregated at the base of Mount Sinai where uh, they're ready to receive the law of God, which lays out God's goal, which, as we heard last week, is obedience. That's what he's after for each of us. And so Moses is up on the mountain. And he's receiving detailed instructions from God himself on the construction of the tabernacle. And that's from uh, about chapter mm, 21, 22, 23, all the way up to 31. Really from 25 to 31. But Moses is up there. And through 31 chapters of Exodus, you have the people grumble. You have them quarrel. You even have them test the Lord. They've heard his voice from on high. They've watched him Deliver them through the Red Sea, and they've pledged obedience to him in a covenant ceremony, much like marriage, uh, which is in chapter 24. So, all these are references, and I would direct you to them. You can read them later on, but they just give you a sense of where they have been and where they are going and how they get to this point through chapter 31, verse 18, and leads us into to this uh, chapter uh, today. God says very clearly in chapter 25, verse 8, that his desire is to dwell with his people. That's his goal. His goal is to be present with them, uh, much like in the garden at the beginning of the the Bible, where he talked and walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. It is, however, on God's terms that he wishes to dwell with them, not on their terms. And so God's not going to be defined or boxed into their making, which is why he's has Moses up there for so long getting detailed instructions, telling him how things are supposed to go in his desire to dwell with the people. But of course, in light of sin and in light of the third page of the Bible, our desire is to dwell without him. Interesting. His desire is to be with us. Our desire as a result of sin is to be without him, or at least to relate to him on our terms, not on his. And uh, was listening to a, a podcast this week, uh, and the interviewer was interviewing a former Episcopal priest and college professor. She's retired now, and uh, she wrote a book on how she finds bits of other faiths, other religions of the world, uh, and, and and where she finds comfort in them, where she finds God in them, and where she finds them more attractive, quite frankly, than the Christian one. Those were her words. And for example, she she talked about Buddhism, and she said, I felt like the teachings matched my life and existence better. It was more attractive than the Bible's description of this eternal life in heaven, which I've never really understood or been into. She said, The Buddha's explanation matched my explanation of my existence more than the Christian one. And what practices Buddha offered for verification provided the verification I was looking for. Now, who's running her reality? Even in the middle of that, it's her. She's picking and choosing. And that's where much of our culture lives uh, is you define the terms, you make the rules, self-actualization of course is the mantra of our time and that's sin. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. It's why it doesn't work and why God spends so much time on the mountain with Moses saying, this is how you must relate to me. I define the terms, not you. Now, when we put ourselves in the place of God, that is a classic definition of sin. Making our will, making our desires supreme instead of his. And as you have heard, this is a chapter about sin. And I hate to be, you know, so down, particularly as we begin spring break. Woo-hoo! You know, we're going to talk about sin. Uh, but this is what the chapter's about. And sin is, as Genesis 4, which is about page 4 of the Bible, reminds us, It's always crouching at the door, ready to pounce. So you got to be on your guard. And as the people were not here, uh, what can we learn from them? The word has not actually occurred very much since Exodus 1, the word sin. But in this chapter, it's used over 10 times. And so we're going to talk about it under three headings. Those are the three headings of your outline. Uh, The starting point of sin, why do we do it? What results from it, which I call its insanity, its effects, which are insane. Funny that we don't call them insane because they're so normal to us, as we'll see. Uh, Two particular ways that the text highlights. And then lastly, what's the solution for all of this? And we see it in Moses uh, foreshadowing or, or, or giving us Jesus in seed form. Which is on, this is page 72 of my Bible. And we're already getting glimpses of Jesus in really powerful ways. So it just reinforces the fact that the story is all about him. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers his name. This one is no different. So, But let's go back uh, to the first point there, the starting point of sin. It often starts, and we're just going to use the text as our guide, uh, with looking at your circumstances. And we've talked about this before. Some of you have been around Redeemer for a while. This is not, familiar, not unfamiliar what I'm about to say, but it bears repeating. Uh, sin starts with looking at your circumstances and interpreting God through them rather than looking at the Lord and interpreting your circumstances through him. Your theology, what you believe or what you don't believe about God colors your reality. So verse one, what did the people see? When they saw, what? That Moses delayed to come down from the mountain not when the people saw or beheld the glory of God once again as they continued to reflect on what it was like to be in Egypt and how he rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his steadfast love abounding, so forth and so on. Nope. They see Moses delayed. They're impatient and they're bored. He's been up on the mountain for about six weeks, okay? Now, That's not an insignificant amount of time. But they reveal that they're too dependent on him, and they initiate this process of manufacturing a god. Because look at verse 1. What do they say? When the people saw that he had delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. False. Right? Who do they credit for rescuing them? Him. They reveal right there they've become too dependent on him. And here's the the statement I would make. Hope you remember this. Uh, Idolatry always starts with what we call gospel amnesia, which is just forgetting the gospel, driven by impatience. Notice how quickly the people become impatient, right? In fact, God says that. They've corrupted themselves and they've quickly turned aside, Now, it's been six weeks, so for them, they're thinking, golly, Moses, hurry up, it's been six weeks. For God, it's just like that. So notice how quickly this happens. Well, sin is always just right there, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. That morning, the people would have collected manna. Do you realize that? They're still in the desert. That morning, they would have collected manna for the umpteenth time, a daily reminder that God is with them, not only that he's with them, that he goes before them. And by mid-morning, they are looking at Aaron and they are saying, hey, up. Maybe he was sitting down or taking a break and, you know, maybe on his way out to dozing to a nap because it's hot in the desert. Hey, get up. Make us some God's. The Lord who made us isn't on our timetable. We want a God we can design, who will meet our needs, made into a likeness we can see and touch and feel. It gives us a sense of control, right? I'm not just repeating what they say to him. I'm repeating the state of our hearts too. And the question is, where in your life is God delaying? Even right now? Maybe intentionally so. Because it's often in those times and places where you're most tempted to insert your will for His, and that's the place where you most need to remember the gospel, where gospel amnesia is gonna come in and cause you to forget. It's where you most need to bring others in to share where you're struggling or, or wrestling with God, because delay causes impatience. Now, uh, a silly illustration of this is me in traffic. And what happens is it identify, or it it reveals my idol of comfort or control. I may not necessarily have to be anywhere in that moment, right? Or maybe I'm somewhere where, you know, I don't have a time I've got to get there. But if you've ever been with me in the car, and my wife will tell you, my kids will tell you, I lose my ever loving mind. I lost it yesterday and the day before because I was on I four two days in a row. I mean, it was awful. Awful, and I can be by myself. I can be with other people, but I'm, I'm I'm reflecting on yesterday, and I just lose my mind. Why? Because I have this idol of control, this idol of comfort. I need a comfortable ride from here to there, wherever there is. And traffic gets in the way of that. Now, a little bit more serious illustration is maybe you have a wayward child. Maybe you have a child who just can't seem to get it together, they're all over the place, and they're quickly deserting, corrupting themselves, quickly deserting the path that you, because you believe God has called you to, set before them. And maybe if it just causes you to lose your mind, maybe it's revealing an idol of perfect kids, or an idol of a good reputation as a parent. So the question is, as I thought about this, just for myself, hopefully for you too, is will you wait? On him, or will you become willful? Because I find when I wait, even in traffic, he's doing something good. I'm not sure what it is, but, it's doing, but he's doing something good. Now, keep going there. Look at verse 2. It's worth noting the gold that's on them. He says, Take the gold out of your uh, ears and, and off your fingers and, and all that stuff. Uh, and bring them to me. Where'd they get that gold? Egypt. As they plundered it, as they left. And so the very gold that God gave them on their way out of Egypt, just as a cherry on top of the rescue, right, Uh, is what they used to provide a point of contact between them and God, or the gods. And this is a direct contrast to the Lord's instructions regarding the tabernacle which we'll see or if you get a chance to read read them they include a lot of gold but of course they would have to wait on those instructions and they're in no mood for waiting now i want you to get this moses is on the mountain receiving god's design for true worship and the people invent an alternative worship worship is still their desire it's ours too it's just the wrong object And that's where idolatry goes wrong because you see, human beings are by design worshiping beings. The reason you know that is the deepest desires of your hearts are what drive your behaviors. And when you substitute a created thing in the place that's only made for God, your heart gets captured by it and your affections get won to it. And when you end up serving that thing in an effort to gain security or significance, you're worshiping that thing. So you're you're doing something you've been designed to do, it's just you're giving it to the wrong object. See, the people were afraid. Their leader had been gone six weeks, they're in the desert, they're not sure where they are or or what's next, you and I would feel the same way. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves with those desires or those fears to know what's next and hey, where's the guy that's been leading us? But the problem was in that moment they become ultimate for the people, And the people end up inventing something to bring them security and eradicate their fear. And that's what we do with idols all the time. Now, in verse 4, what does Aaron do? He takes the time to fashion the idol. That's important because when our heart's deepest devotion is to serve something other than God, we'll sacrifice valuables for it, will we not? He says, give me your gold. He takes it. He fashioned something into it. We'll take the blessings provided by God to fashion for ourselves a God that we can serve and hope in, and that's just stupid. I was about to say, pardon my French, but stupid's not a bad word. John Calvin said this about the people in Exodus 32. He said, they exhibit monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. I love that. I mean, because that's, that's me. That's me in the car. It's just madness, See, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional, financial resources, on it without a second thought. And it can be some of these things. And I just want to list off a few as we move on from here. But it can be family, children. It can be career. It can be making money. It can be achievement. It can be saving face or having a social standing. It could be a romantic relationship or a marriage. It could be approval from your peer group. It could be just simple competence, wanting to be seen as competent all the time. It could be beauty, brains, a great political or social cause. It could be morality. But if you go back to the call to worship, uh, and you can look there in your worship folder, it's from Psalm 106. And what the psalmist says is that we'll willingly trade out the weightiness, the, the glory of created stuff for the eternal richness of God's glory which is another result of gospel amnesia or forgetting it. And because we're so starved for glory, weightiness, another way to think about that is we're starved for significance. We're starved to want to matter in the grand scheme of things. We'll assign honor to and serve idols. The people here in verse 5, if you keep reading, they credit gods represented by the image as having saved them. You see that? Verse 5, these O Israel, are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And they, in the middle of that, rob God. They're stealing glory from God. They exchange his glory for the lie of the metal image. That's what the psalmist says. And in the process, we become as stupid as the idols we fashion. And if you're taking notes, just write Isaiah 44 on your uh, notes there, and and go back and read Isaiah 44, where he describes just the silliness of the whole thing. Now, uh, we get a term from this story. It's what is your sacred cow, or that thing, that's a sacred cow. What does that mean? Something you don't touch, something you don't question, something you can't refuse to give up because you believe your security or identity or approval or satisfaction depends on it. And here's the thing, you'll even ask the Lord to bless it or sanction it. Moses, excuse me, Aaron says, tomorrow we're gonna feast to the who? The Lord. So, they're they're sitting there, the calf is right there, and they start the day, verse six, with offerings to the Lord. Now, if you're thinking, well, how do I identify idols? How do I think about what idols I might be, prone to? Uh, follow your emotions. Where do you most often experience paralyzing fear? Where, where do you experience fear that just riddles you? When do you experience uncontrollable anger? I gave you mine. Or anxiety? Positively, what's the subject of your daydreaming when you daydream? If you don't daydream and you think I'm crazy for talking about daydreaming, oh, I stopped doing that when I, after I grew up. no. You daydream. What do you daydream about? If something that you value too much is threatened, then you'll respond accordingly to it. And so as the people get into the middle of this, they ask the Lord to sanction it. Verse six, they start the day with offerings to the Lord, and then they spend the rest of the day eating and drinking and rising up to play. And I'm not talking about a big game of kickball. It's always funny in translating the Bible, translators keep in mind, uh, we need to be PC here or we need to think about that this might be hard for people to read. But rose up to play is a Hebrew idiom for sexually deviant behavior practiced in a group. Need I say more? Pagan practices is what they were doing after they began the day making offerings to the Lord. You see how gross that is. And what does God see? A stiff-necked people. The word in Hebrew refers to a horse or oxen who will not respond to the rope when tugged to get them to move. You become as dumb as an oxen or a horse who won't move. Sin makes you stiff-necked. Makes us stiff-necked. And what are its effects? Well, just think about what happens when you get caught. This is the insanity of sin, okay? Okay as we are moving on here. What coping mechanisms does sin teach us? Well, what I wanna do is highlight the ones that the text highlights, which are blame shifting and lying. Two of my favorites, okay? Two of your favorites too, probably. Aaron's response in this chapter, aside from being hilarious, and I heard you all laugh because it is hilarious in one sense. It's eerily similar to Adam on page three of the Bible where God comes to him and says, who told you that you were naked? She did. And she points to who? Well, the serpent said. Well, the who's on first and what's on second and and then the, you know, it's it's everywhere but my bad. I'm at fault, right? So we find ourselves with more in common with Aaron and what we tend to do when we're caught is we tend to hide from confrontation or when we need to catch others. Uh, and parents, think about this. We tend to hide from confrontation when we see sin, even in our own families or friends. Moses does no such thing. And sometimes getting angry is the most appropriate response. Look at verse 20. Okay? What does he do in verse 20? It's kind of extreme, isn't it? I debated on whether to tell you. Uh, what my dad would always say to me at the end of dinner if I did not eat all of my food, particularly my vegetables, um, he would tell me he was going to grind them up and give them to me a different way. I'll just say that. You use your imagination. And it reminded me, and I read verse 20, because Moses gets pretty hopping mad, and sometimes things of value have to be destroyed to signify breaking their power over us. Do they not? So I may have been privy last year at some point to an Xbox being thrown in the green dumpster that the city gives you where they take your trash each week and may have seen water poured over it because a parent was rather upset about the power that that thing had taken over their child. I'm not going to name names. But it was a powerful illustration of how anger does produce some good results sometime. Look at what Moses does as we read on in verse 21. He lays the blame right at Aaron's feet. What did this people do to you, verse 21, that you have brought... Such a great sin upon them. Not just a sin, a great sin. And of course Aaron's response is one of the most pathetic responses in the whole Bible. It's one of the funniest, but the reason we laugh is because it's so pathetic. But here's what I want you to see. We do it all the time. Just like him. First, notice sin Tends to refuse blame. It tries to deflect it. Aaron does not say, You know, Moses, you're right. I just let poor judgment get the better of me. I shouldn't have listened to them. My heart is set on evil. Notice what Aaron says You know the people. I mean, it would be like the Lord coming to me and I'm standing up here and I go, You know these idiots out here? How they're set on evil? I tried to tell them, but they said, No, give us this gold, make us a calf. I didn't guard my heart by remembering God's goodness to us. He says, you know those people, they're set on evil. He doesn't include himself in the community of sinners. He shifts the blame. And in the moment, Aaron doesn't want to lose the affection of the people. He wants them to like him. In fact, verses 21 to 24 are one long attempt at removing himself as a key player in the fiasco, in the great sin. Now, what's my version of blame shifting? Well if all the snowbirds would stop coming down here and clogging up the roads, I wouldn't lose my temper in the car. Now, we laugh and that's kinda silly, but again, that's me shifting the blame of my sin on someone else. I'm not taking responsibility for it. That's what he does here. And second, notice that sin hides behind lies, deception, falsehood. So I said to them, verse 24, I mean the funniest, one of the funniest verses, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and poof, out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. I mean I just threw it in there and boom, there it was. I mean that's a straight up lie from the pit of hell. I, we, we do it too. I was talking to someone about this not too long ago. They said, here's the way it works for me. I'm ashamed when I sin, so I hide my sin by lying because I don't want to get in trouble or found out. The problem is I just bury myself under layer upon layer upon layer of deception, and I don't even remember the truth after a while. See, our commitment to shift blame and lie shows the lengths we'll go to protect our idols, as Aaron does here. They reveal our unbelief. And so where are we left? Well, this is where we've got to finish. If sin is so stupid, so downright insane, even pervasive in our hearts, and it works its way out in blaming and lying and reckless living, our only hope is that even as the people faced judgment and received it, we didn't read that part, they received judgment only in part, though, Moses steps up to the plate. Now, he twice calls this a great sin. So what would you need to get rescued from a great sin? A great savior. Now, he points us to Jesus in two ways. And the first is in uh, verses 11 to 14. And I'm not gonna go back and read them, but what you see there is him interceding for the people and reminding God. A pattern that you see again and again in the Psalms. The psalmist will say, God, don't you remember God, what will our enemies think if you don't come through? God, your glory's at stake. Now, don't you want to believe that that's what Jesus is doing in the throne room and what he's been doing in the throne room all those years before he came into the womb of the Virgin Mary? Don't you want to believe that that's what he's doing even now at this moment? Well, listen, it's true. Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for you. Not only in the praying But in the last uh, five verses that we read earlier, Moses says, take me instead. And here's the thing. In Jesus, God will never blot out your name because he blotted out his instead, right? That's the good news of the gospel. Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I'll go up and see the Lord and we'll find out. Did Jesus say, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin? No. No. He said, I will make atonement for your sin. And on the cross, what did he say? It's done. Yeah, amen. See, the gospel is better than unconditional love. It says God accepts you just as Jesus is. Christ bears the curse you deserve. He's fully fully pleasing to the Father, and he gives you his own perfect goodness. And that's the only hope we have. To deliver us from idolatry and the insanity of sin, to look outside ourselves, to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and ask Him to fill us with Him, to win our hearts, to drain the affections of idols. Well, how can you be sure that God will deliver? Because, and this is where I want to finish, in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah says, Recalling this incident, they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck, there it is, appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. And said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your mercies did not forsake them. That is our hope still today. He will not forsake you in Jesus. Idols will. He can't wait to forgive. Idols stand ready to condemn Serving him provides rest and peace. Serving idols provides restlessness and exhaustion. This table right here is proof. He gave himself for you. Idols demand you give yourself for them. So let's pray as we come to this table and ask that he would reveal the truth to us and increase our faith. Lord Jesus, thank you that instead of requiring our life from us, You volunteered your life instead. You came to God and you said, take me instead. Blot me out so that these who deserve to be blotted out would never again have to worry about that. And so we pray that you would increase our faith in you and that where our faith is is weak or even non-existent, you would come into that faith and cause it to spring to life that we might believe that the only hope we have of being delivered from the idols that capture us so often is your mercy, that you stand ready to forgive, that you're full of graciousness and abounding in steadfast love. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The good news of this benediction is as you go, he goes with you. Uh, And so uh, if idolatry is caused by us forgetting, uh, this final word is to remind you, uh, you don't have to gobble as much of him as you possibly can up today because you're not going to get any more until next Sunday. Uh, as you go from here, he goes with you to daily give you his power and presence to defeat all the things that are Amen. getting uh, your attention and the divided loyalties that we struggle with every day. He's still going with you to combat those in your, uh, in your place and for you. So receive these words, they're good words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen, go in his peace.